Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on it. And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. We'll bring you the facts and some timely commentary from policymakers, experts, and grassroots leaders from across the country. This week, we'll catch up on several fast-breaking budget developments in Washington. This includes the Senate Bipartisan Infrastructure Plan and the upcoming budget resolution. Helping me sort through all of this are the Concord Coalition's Policy Director, Tori Gorman, and Concord's Chief Economist, Steve Robinson. They both have a wealth of experience uh, with congressional budgets and economic analysis. So I can't think of two better guests to provide insights into the flood of fiscal news and what's at stake. Tori and Steve, welcome back to Facing the Future. Thanks, Bob. Thanks. Well, um, there's a, a flood of activity going on in Washington related to the budget. Uh, the Senate is debating a bipartisan infrastructure, infrastructure bill, and then there's talk of a budget resolution, and there's talk of a reconciliation bill, and it's easy to get confused in, in, all, of those, uh, in all of that jargon. So, Tori, I wonder if you could sort of walk us through the distinction between these things and uh, the kind of the order in which they're taken up and the interconnection between them. Sure. So when President Biden submitted uh, a budget earlier this year, um, his plan uh, proposed all kinds of, of new spending on infrastructure. And by that, we mean infrastructure as traditionally defined, uh, roads and bridges, airports, et cetera, but also human infrastructure. Um, when House and Senate took a look at these proposals, uh, it looked like there was room uh, to, to generate some bipartisan support on the traditional infrastructure side of things. So they've sort of split the Biden agenda into two pieces. The first being uh, traditional infrastructure, and that is the bipartisan infrastructure bill that you see being debated right now in the Senate. Um, spending, new spending, record spending, if you will, on things like roads, bridges, mass transit, airports, ports, waterways, broadband deployment, et cetera. They're gonna do the second half of President Biden's agenda, sort of the softer human infrastructure side, they're gonna do that on a partisan basis. It doesn't really have Republican support in the House and the Senate. So they use the process called reconciliation to get that part of the Biden agenda across the finish line. And reconciliation, that process allows the Senate to act like the House, bypass the filibuster and pass legislation on a party line vote, but it begins with passage of a budget resolution. And a budget resolution is, a, is an, a, a planning document, an agreement between the House and the Senate, just like 
a typical household would, would put a budget together saying we're going to spend this much on a mortgage, this much on food, this much on car payment, insurance, et cetera. The House and the Senate do the same thing. And that budget resolution all in, also in, will include reconciliation instructions to various committees to produce legislation that follows along what President Biden submitted in his budget uh, proposal earlier this year. So you're seeing the Biden agenda split into three different pieces of legislation. The first is the bipartisan infrastructure proposal that we're being debated, that's being debated right now in the Senate. Next, we'll follow a budget resolution, that planning document between the House and the Senate that Democrats will pass alone with their, with their own uh, majorities in the House and the Senate. And then that budget resolution will kick off a reconciliation bill that we will see much later in the year, probably October, November, maybe even as late as December, that includes all the other stuff that wasn't included in the bipartisan infrastructure bill. So the um, the budget resolution needs to be passed to get the reconciliation protection they need for the big, that's the, when people talk about a $3.5 trillion Bill, exactly. that's really what they're talking about is the reconciliation bill coming down the road. But they got to do a budget resolution first. Yes. Think of um, it, you know, they talk about a Texas two step. Okay. So this is sort of a two step process here. Okay. They've got to do a budget resolution first to initiate the reconciliation process. And that's what gets them to a reconciliation bill later in the year. Um, and, and that's uh, all needed to, to pass not to, to, to pass the reconciliation bill without any Republican votes. Correct. Because they would avoid the filibuster. That's the, uh, the whole that's a, a, a good uh, overview and summary of the, uh, the procedural posture that we're in now. So, so when is the budget re uh, budget resolution likely to, to come up? So both the House and the Senate have to pass an identical budget resolution. Um, and from what we're hearing on Capitol Hill, normally the House would go first, pass a budget resolution, send it to the Senate. The Senate would make some changes, then it would go to conference between the House and the Senate, and then they'd both turn around and pass the same budget resolution. They're going to do things a little bit differently this year in that the Senate is going to address the budget resolution first and then send it to the House and the House will either rubber stamp what the Senate did or the House will make its changes and then they'll have to negotiate and, and wash, rinse, repeat, if you will. Um, so after the Senate concludes its deliberations on the bipartisan infrastructure bill and they pass it and send it over to the House, the Senate is expected to take up uh, it, the, the fiscal 22 budget resolution. And they're going to do that before they leave for their August district work period. As you know, the House and Tenet, Senate typically recess during August to go home to their districts um, and, and, and deal with constituent matters. Um, that normally, that, that, that adjournment is usually around the first week of August. Uh, the lawmakers, are, at least in the Senate, are staying in longer. The, uh, right now to get these two items done before they dismiss for that August work period. So the Majority Leader Schumer in the Senate has said the Senate will complete its deliberations on the bipartisan infrastructure bill and it will complete its deliberations on a budget resolution and send both of those to the House before they adjourn for the August work period. And uh, it sounds from your description 
like if I were in the House, um, the action all seems to be over in the Senate at the moment. Uh, is it? I mean, what what uh, is is the House likely to take up the infrastructure bill? Let's say the Senate passes it and it goes over to the House. Uh, mm -hmm. What's its fate there? That's that's an interesting question because I'm not sure anybody knows exactly what's going to happen at this point. You, so you've got competing forces in the Democrat majority in both the House and the Senate. You've got your progressives that want to spend more, do more. You've got your moderates that are that are more concerned about inflation and increases in debt. And what the the the, the red line and both both sides, <laughs> both teams within the Democratic Party are, are throwing out red lines. So progressives in the House are saying they're not going to support the bipartisan infrastructure bill unless and until Senate passes the three and a half trillion dollar reconciliation bill, which we know is still several chess moves away, right? That's not something that they can do tomorrow. On the other hand, you've got moderate Democrats in the House that are saying, no, wait a minute. If this bipartisan infrastructure bill is ready to go here in the House, we need to take it up and vote on it. And we're not going to give you any support for a three and a half trillion dollar budget resolution, which is step one to getting to the reconciliation bill. We're not going to support that budget resolution unless and until we get this bipartisan infrastructure bill across the line here in the House. So obviously these two events are mutually exclusive <laughs> and it, it'll be interesting to see how uh, Speaker Pelosi and President Biden and Majority Leader Schumer in the Senate triangulate in some way to get unity within their caucus to get things done in a, in a way that allows them to get to that big reconciliation bill in the October, November, December timeframe. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if they can sort of sequence simultaneously. I mean, <laughs> you do something, people are saying, well, I won't support you unless this happens first. And uh, people are saying, well, well, we'll do it at the same time. And you really can't do those things quite at the same time. So somebody's going to have to trust somebody at some point in this process. And it's not clear exactly uh if that level of trust exists even even within uh even mm -hmm. within parties mm -hmm. well uh steve um uh i know you've been looking through the 2702 page infrastructure bill and uh have, have probably read the whole thing and uh <laughs> made annotations of it but you know one of the things it's obviously a very big bill uh it uh puts forward uh, about $550 billion of new spending. There's, I think that understates what's in the bill because it actually extends some uh, spending that is already in the baseline, so to speak, and is being, being approved in this, in this bill. But a lot of attention has gone, well, attention from, from budget folks uh, has gone into the so-called offsets the pay-fors, uh, a, a major premise of this bill was that it would be paid for, that it would not add to the deficit, which groups like ours uh, applauded and said that's, that's a good goal. Um, does it look from your scanning of the, uh, of, the, of the document that they've lived up to that premise? Um, 
sadly enough, no, I don't, I don't think they've quite delivered on their promise of a pay-for, or, or a fully paid-for bill, I should say. Um, you know, they had proposed sort of this laundry list of, of items uh, that collectively would have, uh, according to their own calculations, the, the members of the bipartisan group, uh, they claimed there were enough items to, to pay for pay for the, the infrastructure spending. But when you start going through each item, um, you know, from the legislative language in terms of our you know, first look, obviously, you know, no, I don't I don't know how many people have actually read the entire 2,700 pages. I've I've briefly scanned through much of it, but it's a it's a daunting task to get through that much uh, legislative text. Anybody who's ever read legislative text knows that it's uh, can can be largely incomprehensible unless you sit down with the underlying law and compare the legislative text to the law and figure out what they're amending. And so it, it's it's uh, it's often confusing to to, to decipher. But when you when you go through each of the items that they proposed, um, you know some of them appear to be missing. It's not clear whether they've left some things out of the legislative language or whether they assume some of these items are going to be picked up separately and done through you know administrative action by by you know either OMB or the White House. But you know, I, I guess the bottom line is no. I'm I'm a little dubious that they've managed to actually come up with five hundred and fifty billion dollars of, of actual payfors. Um, well, it's uh, on that. We'll get back to that and uh, discuss it a little bit more. But first, it's time for our first break. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host Bob Bixby, and I'm discussing the Senate's bipartisan infrastructure bill the upcoming budget resolution, and we'll look at the latest economic numbers with Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and Concord's Chief Economist Steve Robinson. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are discussing the latest budget developments in Washington, and there are many. Um, we were discussing before the break the, uh, the attempt to pay for the bipartisan infrastructure bill in the Senate. And Steve, you've been going through the bill. One of the things that, uh, that the sponsors put forward as, as pay for, as covering the new expenditures, is revisiting sections of the various COVID relief bills uh, over the past 18 months. I mean, Congress passed a, a huge amount of spending, I think over $5 trillion in uh, uh, things that were directed at aiding the economy uh, in the uh, pandemic. And so you find that, uh, that a lot of that, you know, part of the way they were gonna spend this uh, pay for the new infrastructure uh, bill is to revisit some of those provisions and see if they could find some savings money that uh, you know they could reprogram. So uh, Steve, what are the, 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 the pros and cons uh, of revisiting the COVID funds and how do you think they um, were able to do that? I mean, that's actually an interesting question. I mean, historically, Congress had operated, or at least you know, in recent decades, had operated under this notion of PEGA, where 
If you were going to spend money, you had to pay for it. You either had to raise revenue or you had to reduce other spending. But then they came along and said, well, you know, but sometimes we have an emergency and PAYGO shouldn't apply because it's an emergency and we're just going to deficit spend because it's an emergency and we have to. So basically, all of the COVID money that's been passed in the last, you know, since this time or, or earlier last year, in February of last year, um, they basically said, oh, this is all an emergency. We're not going to pay for this. We're just going to deficit spend. Uh, and I think it's probably closer to six trillion than it, than it was five trillion. But you know, it, it clearly is an astronomical sum that we've we've you know declared an emergency and we've spent uh, to address the, the pandemic and, and the economic downturn that occurred as a result of the pandemic. And the notion was, well, this is this is an emergency, and we're not going to try to pay for it. We're just going to deficit spend. So you know, the the irony is is that now that we're sort of you know hoping that we we see the light at the end of the of the COVID tunnel, we're going to get back to normal, uh, and then therefore normal rules should apply. The idea is that well, this this uh, bipartisan infrastructure bill is going to be paid for, but what they've proposed to do in large part is to pay for it by not spending the deficit spending money that they appropriated for COVID. So in other words, they're saying, well, you know, we're going to take this money that we didn't pay for and not spend it on the COVID things, the emergency things, and we're going to spend it on the non-emergency things. So it, it's a little, you know, I guess, ironic that, you know, they're, they're using money that was clearly deficit spending to now say, well, we're going to use that as a pay for to offset the, the bipartisan infrastructure bill. And, you know, and I, I was just going to say, well, you can finish that. I just wanted to inject too that that's uh, at, a, at a sort of a global level with the pandemic money. But, but the, uh, another question is whether that money would ever have been spent. Well, well right. Yeah, that's actually where I was going next. Okay. Is that, you know, that raises the question. And in fact, I mean, this highlights one of the pay fors in, in, the, in the infrastructure bill there's a section on unemployment insurance. And the way the section is written, it essentially says, well, it looks like things were not as bad as we originally thought. And therefore the extended unemployment benefits are not gonna cost as much as we thought. And in addition to that, from an economic perspective, there are also a number of, of governors, largely in Republican states who are saying, well, you know, we're gonna end these, you know, the extra $300 unemployment benefits. Those were scheduled to go through September and now some of the states are saying we're going to end them sooner because we're hearing from small businesses who are saying they're having trouble getting workers because these $300 checks are encouraging people not to vigorously look for new jobs. And so, you know, they're ending the money sooner or ending the unemployment benefits sooner. So the question is, if that money wasn't going to get spent, is it really a pay for to spend money that wouldn't have been spent under the original appropriations. And so, yeah, it, it does raise the question, you know, from, from two perspectives, whether these are really pay-fors because it's deficit spending if it was gonna be spent and it's not really spending if it wasn't gonna be spent. So therefore spending it is new deficit spending, not, not an offset of, of prior deficit spending. So yeah, it, it gets a little confusing and it's a little, you know, I think a little suspect in terms of being what has traditionally been viewed as, a, as an actual pay for, and that is taking a program that you know is going to spend and saving the money and then using that as an offset. So anyway, yeah, it's it's a little different than what we've seen in the past. Uh, one of the things that just struck me about the, the pay for is, is that there's so little 
new money. I mean, they're really talking about the bill, the proponents in transformational terms that the once in a generation investments and this and that. And you look at the pay fors and they're so kind of puny. And <laughs> you wonder how they can possibly add up. I mean, and, and I think you both had the same reaction when we first saw the list. There's a lot of the COVID reprogramming is, is a, a big part of this. But before you get to that, there are a lot of what I would call hardy perennials or off the shelf things that are gobbledygook to people when you start talking about, well, they're going to do spectrum auctions and they're going to you know, sell from the strategic petroleum reserve and they're going to extend custom fees. And um, all those are fairly small items, if you can call for six billion dollars small but i mean in this mm -hmm. context it it really is but but i know you both have had some experience i mean Tori, you wrote a blog about this a couple of weeks ago these are not exactly transformational offsets you're exactly right and there's a lot of spend now pay later a lot of these offsets aren't expected to generate any kind of of offset or, or revenue until much later in the budget window um and that obviously gives Congress, a future Congress, plenty of time to uh, redraw or, or retract those offsets. I mean, for, for example, one of, one of the offsets is, is to extend the, uh, the, the Medicare sequester of, of payments to providers, so your hospitals and, and your physicians. That was part of the Budget Control Act in 2011. And we keep extending that, that sequester year over year. Uh, but we, you know, Congress has, has managed to, to stop that. For example, we were supposed to sequester those payments in, in, in fiscal year 2021, but because of the pandemic, they suspended that. It's, I have no doubt in my mind that when it comes time to enacting the, those, so those, those uh, sequestered payments uh, later in the future, that, that a future Congress will say, no, we're not going to enact that. So there's, there's a lot of, of, of spend now and hope we pay for it later. Yeah, one of the other things that uh, isn't really in the bill, I mean, you don't put such stuff in a legislative language, but they're, they're counting on economic growth. I mean, we're talking about specific offsets. You're going to raise some revenue or cut spending someplace else. But they're going to rely, apparently, on a presumption that this bill will itself improve the economy and there'll be economic feedback and that will help pay for itself. Mm -hmm. uh, What's that, that concept of dynamic scoring, Tori? And how might that pop up eventually in this? Sure. Um, you know, there's, there's a theory of economics that uh, fiscal policy, expansionary fiscal policy, uh, you know, can, can generate second order macroeconomic effects and help the economy grow. Um, and so it's, it, I would fully expect to see uh, the, the two sponsors of the legislation, Senators uh, Portman and Cinema, or maybe it's Majority Leader Schumer and Speaker Pelosi, write a letter to the director of the Congressional Budget Office saying, hey, we've put together this uh, bipartisan infrastructure bill that includes records of amount of investment in traditional infrastructure, roads, bridges, transit, broadband, et cetera. And this bill is so large and spends so much, you know, it's got to have some sort of second order revenue effects or second order economic effects here that will, will, will create economic growth beyond what you're anticipating in your baseline. And if we're going to grow faster than what you're anticipating in your baseline, that's going to have some revenue effects that help offset the, the deficit spending. And by the way, what do you think, Mr. CBO director, those revenue offsets might be? And 
they'll CBO no doubt will produce a letter that says something. I have no idea what they'll say. They may say, eh, thank you for playing. There aren't really any significant second order effects, or they might give them some credit uh, for some second order economic growth that, that generates uh, larger than anticipated future revenues. We'll, we'll have to wait and see. But then no doubt that becomes a marketing device for the infrastructure bill, right? So they're able to say, hey, we came up with X amount in, in first order offsets, but then here's the second part over here. And when you add the two together, magically we've paid for, for this legislation. That's not, go ahead, Steve. I'm sorry, Bob. Yeah, it's actually interesting. There is a clue as to what CBO might say. They actually issued a report back in uh, 2016, where they looked at some hypothetical infrastructure proposals and tried to you know, estimate what the, what the macroeconomic effects were. And one of the proposals was to spend $500 billion in infrastructure. Now they was gonna do it over 10 years as opposed to over five years. But what CBO said back then, and this is 2016, was that it would increase GDP by about $33 billion and it would increase revenue by about $6 billion. So, you know, it's pretty small potatoes, as they say, in, in trying to pay for a $550 billion bill to say, well, we've got, you know, dynamic growth effects that are going to give us $6 billion in additional revenue. Now, again, they were doing a sort of hypothetical proposal. It was 10 years over as opposed to five years. So clearly there's some wiggle room for CBO to give them a, a different score. But the notion that they're going to get you know, tens of billions of dollars in offsets, I think is highly dubious given, you know, what we know about CBO's methodology. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was, uh, we have some clue as to what they might be shooting for in that regard, because there was a um, uh, fact sheet uh, circulating on, on Capitol Hill before the, the bill uh, was was finally drafted that, that kind of had a placeholder of, I think it was 50 billion yeah. Or uh, economic in the, in the neighborhood, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I don't I don't know how <laughs> I don't know if somebody talked to CBO and they somehow, you know, hinted to them that they could get that much, but I you know, I'll be really surprised if it's any in a number anywhere close to that. It would just be it would be very surprising. Well, they're not uh, this isn't a, a unique thing. Uh, uh, I mean, the Republicans have always argued that tax cuts should be scored on a dynamic basis and uh, that that would lower the score. I, I, I forget actually what the uh, results of that was with the, the 2017 tax cut. What the when I say the result, uh, I'm not sure what the dynamic effect was, there, but the CBO did give them some credit for a dynamic effect. But as I recall, it wasn't uh, huge. Yeah, I don't. I don't recall the exact number numbers either, but uh, it, it was fairly small. Um, it it certainly did not pay for itself. No, no, by by no stretch. No. Yeah. Well, I think uh, you know, this is one of the frustrating parts about bipartisanship, Bob. And I think you know, we you know, we pointed this out in a blog that we wrote several weeks ago about you know be, be careful when you wish for bipartisanship because that does does that mean that that we off the offsets right um, when when. President Biden put his agenda together, you know, this stuff was paid for with legitimate, you know, tax increases, right? Um, and here we, we, we've gone a bipartisan route. And because of that, we've got this hodgepodge of, of things that sort of paper over uh, the deficit effects, but, but really don't amount to any real revenue 
generating or spend, you know, spending reduction uh, uh, efforts to to make sure that we don't increase the our debt and deficits because of this. So it's just very, very, very frustrating. I think if if the House and the Senate uh, worked harder on actually paying for things in a truthful manner, rather than working so hard to avoid paying for things in a truthful manner, you know, we wouldn't be in such dire straits with our debt and deficit. Yeah, and uh, before we we go to break here, that that is a a good reminder that uh, you know CBO did uh, put out a new well they they just re-released some numbers uh, their their current baseline uh, showing uh, the the major deficits uh, that we have facing us. They predicting that the deficit would uh, slip below a trillion dollars uh, uh, after being $3 trillion this year, that it would uh, uh, slip below uh, a trillion. That's assuming no further legislation. And But but uh, as soon as um, a couple of years go by, the deficits start going back up again because the, the underlying mismatch between spending and revenues. So Congress isn't writing on a clean slate here right. when we talk about deficits. There's already a, uh, a, an unsustainable trend uh, that we had going into the pandemic. And so, you know, really what they're doing, e- even if you pay for things, that alone is, is not enough to, to put the budget back on a, on a sustainable track. So you're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. I'm talking to our Concord's Chief Economist, Tori Gorman, uh, excuse me, Policy Director, Tori Gorman, and Chief Economist, Steve Robinson. We're talking about the budget events in Washington, and we'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. I'm talking to the Concord Coalition's Policy Director, Tori Gorman, and uh, Concord's Chief Economist, Steve Robinson. Uh, We're discussing fast and furious budget uh, events going on in in Washington. And uh, Tori, I wanted to get back to uh, an area of expertise of yours, which is the budget resolution and uh, what clues that might provide to us for uh, what's to come next. Sure. So we we talked initially uh, in our conversation today about how the budget resolution was step one in the reconciliation process that will eventually lead to step two, which is a really large three and a half trillion dollar reconciliation bill we expect later on this year in the October, November, December timeframe. And I think there will be some really interesting clues in a budget resolution uh, that will show us how Democrats plan to draft the reconciliation bill that will follow. First and foremost will be the the instructions, the actual reconciliation instructions in the the budget resolution, that the the budget resolution will actually delineate each committee in the House and the Senate, um, produce changes in laws that generate, you know, X trillion dollars uh, you know, that, that change outlays or, or, or deficits or whatever, they're, they're going to be instructions in that budget resolution. And, you know, Democrats on in the House and the Senate and the president are saying our reconciliation bill, our three and a half trillion dollar reconciliation bill is going to be paid for. And if that's true, then those reconciliation instructions to the committees, for the most part, are going to be very, very, very small, right? Because if you're going to 
uh, you know, spend a whole lot of money, but then you're going to raise a whole lot of money to offset it, then your deficit instructions to your committees don't have to be big. They're going to be very, very, as a matter of fact, it's one way to constrain them and force them to find offsets for the spending proposals that they are going to put forward. So clue one for me is going to be what do the reconciliation instructions look like in the budget resolution that's coming forward? And then the second thing I'm going to look for is what is a budget resolution saying about things like scoring rules and reserve funds and points of order, things. I mean, it's really, you know, inside baseball budget geekdom, but it, it'll give you some sort of clue about what kind of thumb Democrats are putting on the scale to get this reconciliation bill through, you know, what kind of things are they going to do to the budget process that make it easier to get this massive reconciliation bill through the House and the Senate later on this year with just simple majorities in both chambers. So that those are the those are the big things that I'm looking for in this budget resolution as sort of indicators, warning lights about how Democrats are going to draft this reconciliation bill later this year. Because if if they're, for example, go back going back to reconciliation instructions, if they're their instructions to committees total three and a half trillion dollars in deficit spending, that tells me that Democrats really have, are unserious about offsetting their new spending. And that would raise alarm bells for me. Um, for example, if I was a moderate Democrat having to run for re-election in 2022, and I'm concerned about deficits and debt, if they're asking me to vote to support a budget resolution. Uh, that will eventually lead to a three and a half trillion dollar reconciliation bill that does not have to be offset because these instructions say you do not have to offset these new spending programs. Then all of a sudden, I'm rethinking my support for this budget resolution. Well, we'll we will uh, turn to you when the budget resolution is written and uh, and see what you see from the tea leaves. Uh, one of the other things you're going to have to deal with is the debt ceiling. Uh, we're actually past the period now where the debt ceiling suspension has uh, has passed. So the United States, once again, uh, has a debt ceiling, um, but there's no immediate crisis. Uh, Steve, why is that? Yeah, so uh, on the last day of July, uh, the, the, the debt, public debt that existed on that day became the new official debt ceiling. Uh, but we haven't exceeded that level yet. Well, actually, I guess we sort of have, uh, but, but the Treasury Department, uh, from, from the reports that I saw, had about $500 billion in cash on hand at the end of July. So they, they've got some wiggle room. And moreover, there are certain actions that the Treasury Department can take with respect to, for example, their what are, called, what are known as slugs, which are state and local government bonds uh, that are sold by the Treasury to state and local governments for projects. Uh, they've suspended sell of any of those because those would count toward the debt limit. Um, and so, yeah, we, we've, we've avoided triggering any repercussions of having a debt limit that we are nominally exceeding for the next uh, several weeks or months because uh, the Treasury both had cash on hand and, uh, you know, they have some accounting uh, maneuvers that they can take in order to, to technically avoid issuing debt that they're not allowed to issue. Um, and picking yeah, up and that that runs out after a while, and nobody the the uh, you know I guess the cliffhanger is nobody really knows when. Well, that that's the that's the challenge is that uh, you know cash flows to the government are very uneven. I mean, there's some months we run a surplus, some months we run a deficit, 
uh, depending on what you know when quarterly tax payments come in and whether they're you know so we don't have a steady even cash flow throughout the year so it's very hard to predict you know when you're burning through our you know the cash on hand at the end of July as well as these accounting maneuvers um, it, it's not clear uh, the administration has been saying you know it could be as early as, as September the Congressional Budget Office has said no it's probably more likely October potentially even November but because there's no hard target date we are we're playing a a risky game where you know we, we do have the possibility of cash flows uh, bumping up uh, to to the debt limit and, and, and running a risk of, of exceeding it. So yeah. Um, and Tori, that's something that could put in the the budget resolution. Um, I mean, that could put in a reconciliation bill, but the there are some challenges there on on how they do it. Yeah. So that that'll be another clue in the budget resolution is, to how. Democrats plan to address the debt limit issue. Um, several years ago, uh, Congress changed the way they address the, the debt limit. In the past, they've just passed language that increased the statutory limit by a certain number. But that number eventually started getting too big and it became politically untenable. And so what they started doing is just suspending the debt limit for a certain amount of time. Now, the interesting thing about reconciliation is um, it looks like you can't suspend the debt limit in reconciliation. There are specific rules in the Congressional Budget Act that say how you can raise the debt limit via reconciliation. And all you can do is, is specify an increase, which is going back to that sort of politically unpopular way of, of specifying a number by which the debt limit would increase because we're talking trillions of dollars at this point, right? And nobody wants to vote for something that has trillions of dollars behind it. So Democrats are now faced with a conundrum and you'll give some sort of clue about that, how they're gonna address that conundrum in the budget resolution. If they want to raise the, the debt limit, uh, you know, by, or if they wanna suspend the debt limit, they're gonna to have to do that in regular order legislation that requires 60 votes in the Senate, which means they're gonna to have to negotiate with Republicans. And Republicans have been very clear that we're not, we're not gonna help in any way in terms of raising the debt limit, unless there are some sort of reforms enacted with it. So they're gonna to have to negotiate with Republicans about what those reforms might look like. So that's one way to go about that. Um, the other way to go about it is on a single party line vote by putting an increase in the debt limit into a reconciliation bill. But that means they've gotta put something in a budget resolution that says, hey, finance committee, hey, ways and means committee, produce legislation that increases the statutory debt limit by X trillions of dollars. Now, if that instruction is missing from a budget resolution, then that's a clue right then and there that they've decided, the Democrats have decided to go the bipartisan route and look for another showdown later this year in the December timeframe-ish when they've actually probably really, really, really gonna have to address this. You know, what, what sort of, what do they have to give up? What do they have to negotiate with Republicans in order to secure a suspension in the debt limit to get them probably past the 2022 elections? Yeah, that's uh, that's going to be a real cliffhanger to watch. And, and then and not a whole lot of attention, I, I don't think, has gone into planning how they're going to do that. I think they're just hoping that the issue kind of goes away, uh, but it won't. Um, I want to I want to uh, close. Um, uh, Tori, uh, talking a little bit about uh, a former boss of yours, uh, 
Senator Mike Enzi of Wyoming, who was uh, tragically uh, killed in a, in a biking accident uh, recently. And he had just retired, uh, not run for re-election in the last cycle. And uh, he, he, uh, he was chairman of the budget committee on the Senate side. And uh, I, I wonder if you just uh, have some uh, reflections of Chairman Enzi. Mm -hmm. So I actually was lucky in that I got to work for Chairman Enzi twice. I was on his personal staff um, uh, in 2008, 2009 uh, uh, for a couple of years, uh, handled his budget and tax work. Um, and he was a wonderful legislator, a wonderful lawmaker to work for. Um, he, you know, he, he had enormous respect for his staff. Um, he, you know, he, he really focused on what he called the 80-20 rule. Let's focus on the 80% the of the problems that we know that we can find a bipartisan solution for. Um, he treated everybody with kindness and respect because he, I mean, he used to say, honestly, who's really gonna change your mind if they're yelling and screaming at you that you're wrong, right? So he was always, uh, and, and, and that, that type, you know, he, 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 there was an amazing collegiality uh, in, in his office. Um, he was just a wonderful, wonderful man to work for. And then, of course, uh, he became chairman of the, of the budget committee uh, when I was on staff with the budget committee. So I got a chance to work for him again uh, when he yielded the, the, the gavel. Um, and the, the nice thing there is that he, he was always trying to solve problems and make the process better. And uh, I think he will be remembered largely for one of the last things he did. Uh, as a lawmaker and as chairman of the budget committee was to put forward his bipartisan uh, budget reform legislation that he co-authored with uh, Sheldon Whitehouse, Democrat, a very liberal Democrat, I should point out, from, from Rhode Island. So you've got a, a conservative Republican from Wyoming teaming up with a very liberal Democrat from Rhode Island to produce what really was a very cool uh, budget process reform bill you know, that would adopt you know, uh, biennial budgeting. Um, it would create uh, debt to GDP targets. Um, uh, create some of these uh, uh, debt limit reforms that would eliminate this brinksmanship that we're obviously dealing with right now. Uh, it would also beef up uh, the Senate Budget Committee and, and just uh, you know, make it make it uh, more fulsome by incorporating members of the Appropriations Committee, the Tax Writing Committees, et cetera, and the Authorizing Committees, so that you had you know, the decision makers on what our top line spending and revenue levels should be were actually on the Committee of Jurisdiction that was making those decisions rather than having you know, the, this budget committee sit off in, in, in the corner somewhere and, and, and make these decisions and then impose them on, on these other uh, chairmen. So uh, it, was, it really was uh, a smart, piece of legislation uh, from a, a really smart man. Um, and I hope that there is somebody there uh, in the Senate who can pick up his legacy. Well, we're going to have to end it there on that note. Um, but we uh, let me just say that we we backed that piece of legislation. I thought it was a really good bill. Uh, and uh, you know, if you there's a lot that's wrong with the budget process and and uh, Enzi worked very hard on that with uh, White House and produced a very good bill, which actually passed the Senate Budget Committee. Um, it didn't uh, didn't have the support of the leadership, but I think in the future, if people are looking for a good model for a uh, budget reform bill, that would be uh, where I would certainly go.
Well, that's all that we have time for this week. I want to thank Tori Gorman and Steve Robinson for helping us sort through all of the active budget events going on in Washington this week. This is your host, Bob Bixby. I'll be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future. 